pastor here, and I get the privilege of getting us ready to hear from Pastor Tom this morning. Uh, and so but to, to get us ready, there's something in the bulletin that we need everybody to have for, for uh, this morning. So if anybody doesn't have a program this morning, uh, can you raise your hand? We need to get you a program in your hand uh, so you can get the full experience. And that's, that's the program is the full experience here at Central Assembly. If you want to know what's happening here, events that are coming up, things like the, the, the uh, what Samuel just announced, you'd have to have a program. Oh, do we, do we? Programs. We'll get you. Keep your hand up. Be bold. It's all right. We won't make fun of you for not getting a program. It happens. And while that's happening, keep your hands up until you get a program. Uh, while that's happening, last week, Tom, uh, we've been in a sermon series called The Philistines Are Coming. Uh, I hope that you've uh, been shouting that randomly in the shower at work, uh, and that people have been looking at you going, what is that about? Uh, that, that has really been getting into you, and that, that you've really been finding ways to stop losing potential in your life, to stop losing potential. And so I hope that that's happened, and happening for you as Tom's been going through the sermon series. Last week was Sweet and Sour, and this week, I'm not sure what the, the name of it is, but Riding the Escalator. Uh, Judges is in the beginning of the book, so start, if, you're, if you go past halfway, you're a little too far, try to find Judges, and we'll, we'll get uh, going here. So let's pray for the sermon, and uh, yeah, let's see what God has this morning for us. Lord, we thank you so much for what you do, Lord God, the things that you create in us, Lord God, the experiences and the, the conviction that you have for us, Lord God, and I ask that you would help us to see your word this morning for all it is. And that the words that Tom, comes out of Tom's mouth would be filled with the Holy Spirit, Lord God, to convict and reprove and to encourage us in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Samuel, for his announcement. Yeah, I asked Samuel and Amanda to put that event together. I figure as long as they're hanging out together, we might as well have them do something constructive. <laughs> for those of you that don't know, Samuel is our youth pastor, Amanda's our children's pastor, and they're getting married in November. That's what... <laughs> We brought one from La Crosse, one from Oshkosh. We put them in, in the offices next to each other, and that's what happens. Uh, we have a new newsletter out. I, I hope you get the newsletter in the mail. If you don't, there's on that connection card, you can check that box, say, I'd like to receive the newsletter. We'll mail it to you. Otherwise, they're out on the tables out there. Make sure you get uh, one of those. Again, just to kind of keep in tune with, with everything we're doing. Uh, it, it, so riding the escalator, you know, it all, it all started, and again, this is part five of our series on Samson, it all started with falling in love with the wrong woman. Samson isn't the first person to experience a tragic loss of potential because they fell in love with someone who would take them away from the heart of God. His family tried to talk sense into him. But nothing doing. Love is like that, I guess. It went, and it went from bad to worse at the wedding. It, it, it started with the riddle. Remember, I think this was last week, the, the riddle that Samson presented at the bachelor party that stumped the 30 Philistine men until they coerced his wife into revealing to them the answer at the 11th hour. Samson knew his wife had deceived him and and so he paid his debt to those 30 men, and then he left in anger. But when he left, his, his father-in-law gave his wife 
to another man. Sounds like a a bad soap opera, but it's all there in Judges 14 and 15. As the story continues, we see the devastating results of, of riding the escalator of revenge. There's a nefarious back and forth between Samson and the, and the Philistines. It's fueled by passion and pride. It's filled with hate and anger. And it's driven by the spirit of retaliation. It involved death and destruction and left pain and heartache in its wake. Maybe, just maybe, there's a reason God lays claim to vengeance. Maybe he wants to keep us from riding the escalator. As I read this passage, and it's a, it's a, it's a little more lengthy than I like to read in one shot, but as I read this, note the escalating back and forth of revenge. We're in Judges chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, But it came to pass... Within a while after, in time of the wheat harvest, that Samson visited his wife. Now remember, he he had left in anger and, and went back home. That Samson visited his wife with a kid. Now that speaks of a goat. And uh, he's coming to make amends. And he said, I will go into my wife into the chamber, but her father would not let him go in. And her father said, I thought that you utterly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister fairer than she? Take her, I pray thee, instead of her. Samson said concerning them, Now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took firebrands and turned them tail to tail and put a firebrand or a torch in the midst between the two tails. And when he had set the Brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn of the Philistines and burnt up both the shocks and the standing corn and the vineyards and the olives. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he had taken his wife, the father-in-law took the wife, and gave her to his companion. Then the Philistines came up and burnt his wife and her family. Verse 7, Samson said unto them, Though ye have done this, yet I will be avenged of you. And he smote them hip and thigh, great expression, with a great slaughter. He went down, verse 8 says, and dwelt in the top of the rock Edom, waiting for them to retaliate, no doubt. Then the Philistines went up and pitched in Judah and spread themselves in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why are you come up against us? And they said, to bind Samson, so we can do to him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went to the top of the rock of Edom and said said to Samson, don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? You're making our lives miserable. What is this that you've done? And he said, and Samson said, as they have done to me, so I will do to them. And they said, we are come to bind you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said, well, just swear to me that you will not fall upon me yourselves. They spoke to him saying, no, we won't, but we will bind you 
fast and, and, and deliver thee into their hand, but surely we will not kill you. And they bound him with two new cords, brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. He found a jawbone of a donkey, put forth his hand, he took it, and he slew a thousand men with it. So, so let's recap. <laughs> Samson's riddle infuriates the Philistines. So the Philistines coerce his new wife into revealing the answer. Then Samson reluctantly pays off the bet, but left town in anger knowing that his wife had been unfaithful. When he finally calms down, he returns to make amends, but her dad, a Philistine, remember, had already given her away to another man. So in retaliation, Samson got 300 foxes, tied their tails together, set them on fire, released them into the, the fields of the Philistines just before harvest time. Imagine how frustrating that would be for the Philistines. The Philistines, in response, burned his wife and her family. So Samson smote them hip and thigh, the King James says, which, which is an expression which, which speaks of a great and complete slaughter. The Philistines, who were the, the ruling force in the land at that time, then leaned on Samson's people, and the men of Judah came, captured Samson, bound him, and turned them over to the Philistines so that, so that they would quit imposing problems on the, on the people of Judah. In response, Samson broke free, killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. What we've witnessed here is Samson and the Philistines riding the escalator of revenge and vengeance. You do something to me, I retaliate. You respond, and I react. You do something bad, I do something worse. And where does it end? I worked with a guy when I, when I worked down at Georgia Pacific. I worked with a guy, and there was lots of practical jokes that took place there. You can imagine you put a number of guys together for eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, and they, they do strange things to each other. And so we'd do all these little practical jokes. There was one guy that would always say, I don't get mad, I get what? Even. But then he would add tenfold. And so I, I remember there were a few times I'd play a practical joke on him, and he'd be way down at the other end of the plant, and uh, we'd meet eyes down the hallway, and he'd go like this. <laughs> and I'd know my day was coming. So let me give you four reasons this morning why vengeance is a bad idea. Four reasons vengeance is a bad idea. Number one, vengeance means I don't believe God is just. Okay? Vengeance means I don't believe God is just. The word vengeance has an obvious meaning. And there's no hidden nugget in the original language. You know, I like being able to say, well, in the original language, here's what it really means. I got nothing as far as that goes. Uh, but, but vengeance means retribution, 
It means to avenge. It means vindication. And it means to punish. And maybe it's that last part. Maybe it's the to punish part that prompts us to overstep our bounds. There's something within us that longs for justice. It's, it's part of the, the moral code that's written in our hearts by, by the Creator who created us in His own image. So, so when we see an injustice, something rises up within us and, and we want to compensate the victim and we want to punish the perpetrator. In the news yesterday, the mass shootings. We hear about that, and this is exactly what happens. We, we, we sympathize with the victims and their families, and, and something rises up within us that wants to punish the perpetrator. We're created in the image of God who is just. It's wired into us. Justice is that perfect level playing field. It's what our, it's what our spirit longs for, and, and that's good. Getting there is our problem. Justice just doesn't come fast enough for us sometimes. And this becomes one of the places where we often feel as though we have to step in and, and help God along. We tend to forget that God is just. We know that he's love, but he's every bit as much just as he is love. As much as he is love, he's equal part justice. Love and justice are the two banks of the river of God's nature. You cannot have one bank of the river without the other, or you have a swamp. The in, hear me now. The entire, this is, this is a pretty definitive statement. The entire gospel message is predicated upon both love and justice. Acts 17, 31 says, Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, speaking of Jesus, whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. God will not be mocked, church. One day the world will be judged. One day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all to the glory of God. You can say amen to that. Make no mistake about it. God will judge in wisdom and in truth. He will not miss a thing. Everything done in secret will be laid bare. Everything done in darkness will be exposed. You might think you're fooling God. You might think you got away with something. But a day of reckoning is coming. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you're washed and you're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Revelation has another 
catalog of the disinherited in Revelation 21.8. It says, but the fearful and the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. Listen, God is just, and you better believe it. Don't make the mistake of remembering that God is love and forgetting that he's also just. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when I take it upon myself to execute vengeance, when I exact my own pound of flesh in the name of justice, I'm proclaiming that I don't believe God is just. Number two, we're talking about four reasons that vengeance is a bad idea. Number one is, it says I don't believe God is just. Number two, vengeance opens me up to my own judgment. If you only get one thing out of this whole sermon, listen to this part right here, okay? Then you can nod off again. This is the part to zero in on. This is the part to focus in. Focus. There's a portion of Scripture that applies here, which I believe is often misused, and it's found in Matthew chapter 7. And the familiar part says, Judge not that ye be not judged. Or, or judge not lest ye be judged. Right? That's the part everyone quotes freely, and we tend to stop right there because it usually helps to make our point. But what about the rest of the story? What about the rest of the passage? It continues, For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. In other words, meet it out, like meter. So with what measure you measure it out, it will be measured back to you. Judgment. How will you say to your brother, let me pull the mode out of out of your eye, and behold, there's a beam in your own eye. You hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of your own eye, then you shall see clearly to cast the mote out of your brother's eye. Now, a mote is a dry twig or a piece of straw. It's a tiny speck in someone else's eye, and it's contrasted to a gigantic beam in your own eye. So, so are we told not to judge? Or are we being instructed how to judge? The end of the verse tells the story. It tells us that if we go through the process of removing the beam from our own eye, we will be in a much better position to remove the speck out of someone else's eye. If we remove the beam out of our eye, it means that we've accepted the fact that we're a sinner too. It means that we understand the process of dealing with sin. It means we, we will have a compassion on others in the midst of their struggles. This is why there's no, no better person to minister to an addict than a, than a former addict. Why? Because they get it like no one else can. If we've gone through the process of dealing with our own sin, we will judge with compassion. We will judge with mercy because we've been there too. But that can only happen when we've dealt with the beam in our own eye. Only then are we in a position to judge. 
We are not told not to judge. We are told how to judge. John 7.24 confirms our theory. Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. It isn't that we're not to judge, but how we judge is important because the judgment with which we judge others becomes the standard by which we are judged. For with what judgment, back to Matthew 7, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you mete it out, it will be measured back to you. In other words, the judgment you judge others with is the same standard by which God will judge you. So, so let's think about this. You get to set the bar. You get to set the bar. How high are you going to raise the bar of your own judgment? Judgment is serious business. According to Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. You get to set the bar. The world would be a better place if we would judge others by the same standard we want to be judged by. Let's be a merciful people. Let's be a people who forgive. Not once, not twice, 70 times, seven times. Let's be a people who err on the side of compassion. Let's be a people of, of not just a, a second chance, but another chance. Let's assume there's more to the story. Let's assume there are things we don't know. Let's understand that people hurt others out of their own pain. Sometimes people react in a way that disguises what's really driving their behavior. They're scared, they're insecure, they're defensive. And fearful people behave in desperate ways. The people we call stuck up are often painfully, painfully insecure. Perhaps we're not to judge their behavior. Maybe we're to look into their soul and empathize with whatever it is that drives their behavior. We're not instructed not to judge. We're taught how to judge. We're to judge with the mercy, forgiveness, and compassion we so desperately need ourselves. Number three, vengeance puts me in the place of God. Psalm 94 says, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, show yourself. Lift up yourself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? Come on, God, stick it to them. I wonder if in the political realm, this doesn't resonate a little bit with us. 
The psalmist agonizes like we often do, watching the wicked get their way, hurting the innocent, tormenting the people of God, and even mocking God Himself, believing somehow they've gotten away with their sin. And we long for God to execute judgment. We long for God to pour out His wrath in the name of justice. And when He doesn't, we want to step in for Him. We put ourselves in the place of God. The psalmist struggles with this until finally he's able to rest in the fact that the God who created sight sees it all. Verse 9 of Psalm 94 says, He that formed the eye, shall he not see? When I take matters into my own hands, I'm putting myself on God's throne. Romans 12, 19 reminds us, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. In other words, put wrath in its rightful place, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Do not put yourself in the place of God. Number four, vengeance escalates the problem. If we learn nothing else from Samson, we should learn this. Vengeance just ups the ante. When we take part in the cycle of revenge, we're just, we're just riding the escalator, taking it to the next level. It doesn't get better. Vengeance doesn't solve the problem. Vengeance doesn't end the conflict. It, it escalates. An Australian entrepreneur created a device that allows you to send your enemies a glitter bomb. An envelope full of glitter, which when opened, bits of sparkly spite fall out and stick. Just like grudges stick. And some of you are thinking, this might be a good idea. <laughs> and that's your problem. The product was such a big hit when they introduced it that the initial wave of response crashed their website. Some of us are bent on avenging wrongs, but revenge is rarely ever sweet. Revenge never satisfies like you hope it will. It simply escalates the situation. It just inflames the emotion and aggravates the offense. It's wise to acknowledge that most of us deep within our sinful nature have an innate urge to get even. We all react in some way to a perceived injustice, and we should. But when people take it upon themselves to exact revenge... Not only does it fail to prevent future harm, it also doesn't make the avenger feel any better. While there may be an initial intoxicating rush, they feel far less satisfied than they ever imagined. We've all witnessed the courtroom scenes where relatives of a murder victim cheer when the perpetrator is convicted. And, and many times they're allowed to witness the execution if the death penalty is, is invoked. And most find it surprisingly unsatisfying. While revenge is a, a dish best served cold, it can leave you empty. If anything, 
Vengeance leads to an increasingly malicious game of back and forth. You're, you're simply riding the escalator. Now the tagline for our series on Samson is the tragic story of Samson's lost potential. Samson wasted his strength attempting to satisfy his thirst for vengeance. Playing the role of victim, judge, jury, and executioner is exhausting. Dwelling on how wronged we were or how offended we are gobbles up our brain space and consumes our creative juices. How much better to forgive, heal, trust God, and move on with all that he has for you. Hear me. Vengeance is the devil's way of getting two for one. Vengeance is the devil's way of getting two for one. Don't sacrifice your potential on the altar of vengeance. Vengeance can take many forms in the life of a Christian. It can devolve into gossip, unkind words, criticism of someone within our little, your own little circle. We may spread rumors or mistreat people. We may withhold our, hear me now church, we may withhold our participation uh, in an event or even in a ministry because that certain someone is there. And they don't deserve to be in our presence. Or maybe it's that we can't stand to be in theirs. No matter how it manifests itself, vengeance never helps. It only escalates the problem. Somewhere along the line, someone has to let it go. Somewhere along the line, someone has to say, vengeance belongs to God and God alone. We cannot take vengeance into our own hands. Vengeance means I don't believe God is just. Vengeance opens me up to my own judgment. Vengeance puts me in the place of God. And vengeance escalates the problem. So let me ask you this morning, what's the, what's the unresolved hurt in your life? What's the unresolved hurt in your life? What happened to you that you've never let go of? Who are you looking for the opportunity to get even with? Now hear me, church. Who are you looking for the opportunity to get even with? Who do you secretly hope for bad things to happen to? Some things to remember about your unresolved pain. Number one, it's, it's a root of bitterness. It, it permeates your existence. Number two, your unresolved pain affects you more than you realize. It may, it may come out sideways, but it'll come out. And number three, it's robbing you of potential. What grudge are you holding? What unforgiveness has lodged in your heart? What root of bitterness are you choosing to nourish? What are you going to do about it? Let me give you a quick list of six things. Number one, pray for God to forgive you. Pray for God to forgive you. You see, this is on you, not them. 
Your unforgiveness, your attitude, your acts of vengeance, your spirit of retribution, that's all on you. Now own it and ask God to forgive you. Number two, lower the bar of judgment so that you can jump over. Number three, send a text. Send a letter. Make a call. Number four, do whatever you have to do to make it right. Number five, forget their part. Forget their part. Leave that part to God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Forget their part. Number six, acknowledge your part. That's the only part you have control of. I'm going to ask uh, Steve to come. We're going to do communion a little bit different today, and there's... I have to set this up a little bit. In your program that you received, there's not only the sermon notes, but there's a blank piece of paper. You all thought that was a mistake. And, and what I'd like you to do as we pray over the elements and the, the worship team plays on that blank piece of paper, what I would like you to do, can I have a blank piece of paper? Thank you. And, and if you need to, if somebody's sitting next to you and they need to, to tear it in half and give you half, that's fine. But write on that blank piece of paper the grudge that you're holding, the unresolved hurt in your life. And, and my hope and prayer is that in these few moments while the team's playing before we come forward for communion is that you would really ask God, you know, this may, this may be so much a part of who you are that, that you don't think of it in these terms anymore. But what, what's the unresolved pain in your life? That's draining you of potential. It's holding you back. And for some of you, it may be very obvious. For others, you may have to contemplate it for a while. It may go back a few years. And what I'd like you to do is just write something on the paper that indicates that for you and and uh, I'll collect them all and then late at night I read them. No. no, actually, actually what we'll do is we'll, we'll, put them in the, we'll put them in the shredder. And then you, then you take communion. So we're just going to pray for a few minutes, let you contemplate your unresolved hurt. The worship team will play. In just a few moments, I will come back, pray again, instruct you on how to come up. And then we'll take communion together. So this is just a moment of contemplation where you think about the unresolved hurt in your life. And let's give it back to God.